Welcome to the Recruitment Mentors podcast. My name is Hisham Azuz. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by James Layton, who is the founder and CEO of the Anderson James Group. James started his recruitment career in 2005, where he actually started in tech recruitment in London. Since then, he has worked for multiple recruitment brands, including Michael Page, and he took his recruitment career into the property and construction markets. In 2015, he set up the Anderson James Group, who now have four key divisions within the business, executive, housing, construction, and consulting. The business is now nearly six years old. They have 16 people in the company with ambitious growth plans. And James's role within the company now is all about the strategic direction, the growth, and the day-to-day management of the group altogether. So James, it's a pleasure to finally have you on the pod, mate. (laughs) Welcome. Thanks, mate. Excited for this. So where we always like to start, what characteristics and traits do you think make up a highly successful recruitment consultant? Yeah, well, being an avid listener, I knew it was coming. So um, we've done (laughs) quite a lot of work as a business on this with the management team recently. And bar the usual stock answers of work ethic and all the things that you hear, like resilience, etc., we broke it down into three areas. I think we look for people that are inquisitive and curious. We think it's a big part of what we do. We look for people that have got quite obsessive personalities so that are willing to sort of throw themselves into things and really sort of double down on being entrenched in their marketplace. So the way we test that generally is like, what have they been obsessed with previously? Whether that might be sport, it might be a hobby, it might be something else. Like where have they really gone the extra mile? And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that. And the other one's communication. But previously, if you'd have asked me five years ago, I'd have said verbal communication. But we really test now written communication because it's a big part of what we do. Yeah, so we've started to, as part of our interview process, we've started to get candidates to write a spec about themselves or or an email to to outline an introduction because, you know, I don't know what other markets are like, but our market specifically at the moment is, you know, 50-50, I would say, verbal and, and, and written. And so you've got to be able to write well. And as you know, from a personal brand perspective, you've got to be able to, to write good content from time to time. Yeah, that, that definitely was never my strongest point, to be fair, writing. I think, have you or the team ever used a tool or heard of a tool called Grammarly? No, but it's interesting you say that. I've used it personally, but the team don't use it. But just to make sure if I'm sending out anything important, I just run it through that tool and make sure it's it's accurate. Yeah, yeah, because that's what I mean, like relying on a human person to always make sure it's accurate. There's going to be things that slip through. My boss got me to do a similar thing when I joined his recruitment business and I was actually that bad at sort of writing. I didn't have that enough confidence. So I actually, I paid someone to do my CV. Did you? <laughs> it was like 70, 80 quid. And I was like, what? Yeah, why not? Do you know what I mean? Obviously, I just blagged it as well. I was like, yeah, I did the CV, da, 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 all that. So, yeah. yeah, like, fair. But I get the written thing. But I think there's definitely tools that people should use that can help support that. But there's going to be key things you're going to be looking for. Like, are they actually capable of putting things together? 100%. Yeah. So, been in the recruitment game for a while a lot to uncover but obviously I, I want to really focus on the sort of AJ journey so far since 2015 right but let's just touch on James Layton early days being an employee a recruiter in, in a few different recruitment brands so I didn't actually realize that when obviously I prepared for this I thought he was always like in the Manchester way but obviously started in London yeah in like the classic tech recruitment like when you think about early days of recruitment for you what comes up for you? What was difficult? Like, how do you see the past? 
It's interesting. I moved to London on my own as a young 20-something-year-old chap. And I got into a bit of trouble back home in terms of, like, I was from Burnley originally. There's not a lot of, in terms of industry there. So I knew I had to move out of, of that area to try and progress my career. And I went down to London and did, I met a rector rec at the time. I didn't know they were rector rec. I met a rector rec and they said, look, recruitment would be great for you. You need to do this. And I remember getting off the tube once in bank as like a bright eyed, bushy tailed young man and thinking, fucking hell, this place is insane. Like everyone's got suits, ties, all that sort of stuff. And I went to like five interviews and ended up joining Portland Resourcing, but I had no understanding of what recruitment was. And they put me into SAP tech in Germany which was an interesting an interesting time, really. Bernie lad taking over the SAP German market, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, honestly, mate. <laughs> you couldn't fucking write it. And, like, to be fair, they just give me, like, a Zing license and said, this is, at the time, now I realise, it's like a LinkedIn platform and you just need to connect with all these German SAP professionals and try and place them into, into global businesses. And to be fair, it was a massive introduction to the sector because 90% of the people didn't want to speak English to you. So you were just trying to get through gatekeepers in English and it was wow. it, it was an interesting period for sure. I mean, yeah, but obviously you worked there for like nearly four years. That must have been a bit of a roller coaster, no? Like surely that must have been really difficult. There's tools, like there was translation tools even back then. And so you'd put your emails through translation tools. You'd try and make an effort with the, the German culture. And the good thing about German SAP was that they're really, really disciplined in the way that they work. So if you do get a relationship in that area, and a lot of these businesses, you know, we were working with like global companies, Coca-Cola, you know, the big, big businesses, a lot of them spoke English. It, the, the interesting thing is if they didn't want to talk to you, clearly their English got worse and worse and worse as the conversation went on. So it was easy to get pied in that world. But I think when I started out in that journey, like my journey was slightly different in the fact I had to make it work. I was living in London. I had no money. I was like, I'm going to make commission here to just even get on the tube every day. So you just like got, got you, on you, with you it. You burn the, burn the boats. I'm sure you've had that yeah, phrase before, right? There's yeah, no yeah, other yeah, option. Yeah, we burnt the boss. There was no other option other than to make it success. And to be fair, it was a tough 12 months. You know, it was really tough. But in some ways, I always say this to my guys as well. It's like, it's sometimes better when you don't know, i.e. you just throw yourself into it. And it's the normality for you at that time. Looking back now, if someone said, go and do German SAP, I'd be like, I'd rather not. But so, at yeah. that point in time, it was, it was needs must. Yeah, yeah. So I guess interested, best piece of advice you got early on, do you think, that helped you? Well, as we just said, be fearless, you know, the thing that we've started to see and our training's definitely got better over the last five or six years, but is that we really look for that now in a person Like, will they throw themselves into the, into situations that are difficult and push themselves out of comfort zone. And I think I've always been pretty good at that in terms of just totally throwing myself out of my comfort zone and seeing what happens. And if I hadn't have done that in that situation, I think the result would have been very different. It was a high turnover company that I worked for in the sense that it was really hard international markets weren't easy back then I think a lot more companies have gone overseas now and it's it's definitely become more the done thing back then it was like it was genuinely foreign excuse the pun love that so how did you then obviously go from obviously I guess I'm just curious on like how you dealt with transitioning markets right interested in that because obviously some people obviously will think about that in their career or be quite worried about that. So how did you then end up going from that sort of world to then obviously by the time what you was in Michael Page or was it at HR Go Recruitment, you was already in the more property space? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I did two tech companies. So I worked for a business that 
at the time were called Chapman Black. I think they changed their brand a couple of times, but I moved from Portland Resource into a business called Chapman Black more latterly and worked for a guy called Ezra Chapman who was pretty inspirational and, and someone that really like drove me into a different part of my career. And I think through seeing people change markets there quite often, I thought, look, I can do any market here. And an opportunity just arose to join HR Go to work on one account. It was like a big account management job. And I thought, I fancy that. And so I tried it. At the time, I didn't see the relevance of me moving markets. I just thought it's recruitment. It's Yeah, yeah, you it can is do that. Yeah, yeah. I can do that. But obviously now when people have started to niche markets a lot more, I think it's a lot harder for people to move between different markets. You're starting again almost, or that's the, the perception. But we've got a guy who started with us, Rick, who you've met, and you know he transitioned He's out insurance, of risk. insurance, wasn't he? Insurance, yeah, finance. risk, insurance, finance, financial services. And he is absolutely smashing it. It's 12 months in. So it can be done with a little bit of strategy combined with a bit of elbow grease, to be honest. Yeah. Let's just pull back the onion a bit on this then, because I think it's useful for people. Obviously, we're talking offline, like how difficult it is to hire for your business at the moment. But I guess any advice for anyone that like is maybe thinking, you know what, I want to stay in recruitment, but I actually like the idea of potentially changing markets or I'm concerned about changing markets. Like what advice would you give me if I'm making that transition or considering it? The advice I would give is that I'm always a big fan of just follow your gut. And, And I honestly think that IT and tech recruitment didn't necessarily suit me. Look, I did all right. I build well, but it wasn't a real skill set match for, for what I've now gone on to do. And I felt that the personality driven markets were better for me. And that's why I ended up transitioning into property and construction. I think if someone's looking to, to move markets, you know, you've got to trust the process and you've got to trust that I'm a good recruiter and a good recruiter can recruit in any market. I say to my guys all the time, like we've got to make ourselves the very, very best at what we do and that we can find candidates in any corner of the world, in any sector, in any market. And if someone asks you for a I don't know, a Russian astronaut, you should be able to map out that world. Who has the candidates that you can target? Who are the clients that would recruit those types of roles? And you should be able to build a market relatively quickly. The problem is generally people get into a bit of a comfort zone around the market that they're in and think it's too scary to go and do the the other markets out there. But my understanding of that and my advice for anyone trying to thinking about moving markets would be you've got to just throw yourself into these things and, you know, Given the technology change recently, what we've found has been a big, big help for us is that we've been able to expand geographies quite seamlessly and we've been able to do 30, 40, 50-minute check-ins with clients and have face-to-face meetings or, or online, which would have usually been in person. And so you can grow your market. We, we've got a guy that's just joined us to do exec search. He's done 75 meetings in his first three months. Like, but, but you couldn't do that in the office. Imagine you know, that, but, yeah, face-to-face, yeah. You couldn't have done that face-to-face. So, you know, the playing field has been leveled to change markets. If ever someone was going to move markets, now's the time because it's quite saturated out there from a recruitment perspective, especially in the UK markets. But the technology is there to support you being able to break into these customers a lot easier and build relationships. Yeah, great point. Yeah, I think to run that off it's just like yeah trust that you can do recruitment trust the process as you said back yourself on that and then it's like you said back to what you're looking for in the sort of people that are early on in their careers like throw yourself into it and learn listen i guess also there's i just always hear it, it's just good advice of like let people know that like look hey i am building out this market this is the journey on and bring these people on that journey because people are happy to help so hr go then was that like sort of corporate 
Yeah, so they're a big like branch mentality recruiter. So they do a lot of like driving industrial other recruitment and they managed to win like a huge property and construction account where they'd recruit all their recruitment for temp and perm. And obviously they had no one in their business that did it. And so they recruited myself as a almost an internal external recruiter, like an on-site recruiter for this business. So I just spent all of my life, although I worked for HR Gold, working for one business as their internal recruitment company. Good, that must have been a really good experience there. The best experience. And it's a, a bit of advice that I, I've given to people previously is, you know, the, there used to be a stigma around doing internal recruitment and these RPO type accounts. But actually, I honestly think I've learned more being an internal recruiter for the period I was trying to get rid of my restricted covenants whilst leaving Michael Page than any of the external recruitment agency experience I've had, because you understand about business, the way it ticks, the way that people make the decisions, why they make the decisions they make, and also the inner workings of how a talent strategy and a HR strategy work. Let's just talk about this for a second, and then we'll go into the AJ story, because I think I think it's useful, and I'm sure, I don't know if you do a bit of this, I know quite a bit about your business, I know that you have different services, right, but I don't know if you've noticed more and more recruitment businesses like offering this sort of talent partner solution. Like, you know, I'm sure you've seen that where it's like James Layton partners with X company via Anderson James. So I feel like more and more agency recruiters, one of the solutions or problems they're trying to fix is the things that you're just talking about, the inner workings, the actual HR problems, the the talent strategy problem, all of that. From your experience, what are some of the things, I guess, people assume about being in that world, an internal recruiter, whatever you want to call it, that probably people get wrong? Because I think it's easy for an agency side to go, oh, James, the talent manager for Wilmot Dixon, is he's slow, he never gets back to me, all he cares about is pleasing the people. Do you know what I mean? Like, we can make loads of assumptions, can't we, in agencies? So, like, what are some of the assumptions that you think people get wrong a lot of the time because you've been in that seat? This podcast is proudly partnered with Vincherry, the recruitment operating system for your front, middle, and back office. So I recently recorded a podcast with James Layton from the Anderson James Group, which will be out really soon. And as part of our conversation, we got into the topic of the best tools that he's invested in so far in his business journey. And guess what? Vincherry was up there and also Sourcebreaker was. But in this very short snippet, you're going to hear why James is so happy to be a Vincherry customer. And look, who's better to tell you about their product and why you should be considering Vincherry as your operating system partner than their customers themselves. Here's what James had to say. We implemented Vincherry right in the heat of lockdown. We decided that it was the right time. The old system that we use was clunky. I'm a real, real, real believer of Vincherry as a system. I must have recommended 20 people to Vincherry over the years because I think they're going to change the game. And I can say that wholeheartedly, having used Bullhorn and another product, I can say that Vincherry is number one in that world for a growing recruitment business because it's intuitive, it's got intelligence suites, it's got everything that you probably need to... Yeah, it's a whole operating system, not just a CRM, is it? Is this the whole point? Yeah, it's, and yeah. It's, it's brilliant. And they're brilliant. Like, you know, Eloise and the team there, they're, they're great. And they're always there if you need them for anything. There's a couple of points on that and things that I think about. One is that it's a harder job than anyone will ever imagine because you get pulled from pillar to post internally as well as externally. So you've got a lot of stakeholders to manage. I think the the challenge from a recruiter perspective is if you saw what went on inside some of these big PLC businesses, you know, Wilmot X were a billion pound company 
and the just volume of sheer volume of recruitment that they deal with on a daily basis is crazy. When I went there, they were one of my biggest clients at Michael Page, and I went there as their internal recruiter. And I thought, honestly, I was thinking, I've honestly got this place tied up. I do all their recruitment. <laughs> And you get inside and realize, wow, my tiny, tiny percentage that I used to bill in this business, there's thousands of recruiters making two, three, four hundred K out of them. And I'm like, you honestly just think from a perception. And it's something that I tell my guys all the time is like, don't ever get assumed that you know everything about a business. Because clearly when I've gone internal, you're like, wow, I am small fry in this place. Like in terms of what I've done for them, but the external appear or what I thought when I was at Michael Page was like, we've got this sewn up. We're doing all their recruitment. There's no infiltration. There's no leakage to other agencies. I was ridiculous. I was like number 20 in the list of agencies that work with them. That's nuts. That's where I think people go wrong when it comes to like expanding accounts, right? That they can assume, like like you just said, this client's sweet, they're in the palm of my hand, do a lot of their business. But maybe thinking back, you could have probably asked a few more questions or been a bit more curious maybe to find out and realize, actually, I'm only doing a sliver of what I could be doing or what my wider team could be doing. A hundred percent. And it's it's that classic, isn't it? Mapping out a market properly. And when someone's giving you roles, asking that one further question to say, well, like what else is happening in your business? Who else can I connect with? Who else can I speak to? And generally, because you're doing well with long contact, you, you can sometimes get a little bit lazy around that and think, well, we're doing really well. Let's just carry on as we are. Yeah, that's really interesting. Any other headaches that people maybe, a common one that I've heard, I don't know what your experience was, was, was that whole like internal stakeholder management. We've had a few agencies recently join recruitment mentors who their whole model is that talent partner model. And one of the areas that they want sort of to develop or advice on or hear how other people are dealing with it is that internal stakeholder management. I think that's a completely different ballgame in that, I feel like. Yeah. So we do outsource stuff here and, and it makes up nearly half of our business at the moment. And it is totally outsourced recruitment. So we're basically act as the internal recruitment function of a business. But when I was at Wilmot Dixon and taking the knowledge from that, what you realize is that recruitment and you've always got to remember this recruitment makes up about one percent of someone's job generally at the board level anyway and so they just want that headache taken away from them and you've got to find ways to make that as seamless as possible for the end user and also put them at the epicenter of the problem so actually think well that person hasn't got time to deal with me i need to do all the due diligence and everything that i need to do within this process to make it smooth for them and if they do that generally the, the people that did the best with me from an agency perspective were always the ones that didn't keep hounding you didn't keep hassling you didn't spec to you listen to what you asked you know how many, the amount of times i'd say to someone can you just stop sending spec emails in because we just don't look at them and five minutes later you'd get another one and from an internal perspective you'd think well that's fine like you carry on but it just proves to me that you can't listen it's nothing to do with the power of the situation it's just you can't listen and therefore if i give you a brief are you going to even listen to that is it just going to be send cvs willy-nilly so i think quality is everything and when you work in an internal recruiter the scale of quality from agency to agency is vast you know from the really poor quality agencies right through to the very good ones the the actual gulf of quality is crazy to watch from an internal perspective interesting so let's unpack your business journey then so far right because i know there's been ups and downs and obviously i've known you for a little while now i do feel like whenever i've spoken to you recently like you just seem really positive about what the future looks like and is it fair to say maybe you might have turned a bit of a corner really in terms of like what's going on and how things are looking 
Yeah, before I came on today, I was thinking about this and and I was thinking, you know, where should I position the journey? And, and I think the best way for me to do that is to be candid in the sense that we didn't take an investment when we started. And I really thought about it. Was, as I was setting up, we really thought of an investment. I spoke to actually Ezra Chapman Black. I spoke to a few other like angel investors and we decided not to take investment. And I'm really pleased that we didn't take investment. And for those people that are out there thinking about setting up their own recruitment companies, whilst everyone's got different circumstances, if you can avoid investment, I'd avoid investment. And the only reason I'm saying that is because I've quite enjoyed the struggle as well as the joys and the the successes that we've had of how does finance work? How does IT work? How does the back office work? How do we send invoices out? And actually creating that infrastructure over the five or six years, whilst it's been a pain in the arse, has been a really, really, really good journey to go through. Because I think it's really rounded my business acumen for a start. And secondly, you understand each facet of your business from day one. You have to. You've got no choice. You've, you've got this yourself, I'm sure. But we didn't take investment. And obviously, cash flow is a massive problem. And I think in the early days, we hired someone in month three. I hired Steph, who'd worked for me for a long time at Michael Page. And we hired her after three months. And whilst looking back, it's the best thing I ever did hiring Steph. It's also ridiculous to think we hired someone when we didn't really? even <laughs> have. What, what gave you that fearlessness then to do that? Was it naivety? Yeah, yeah, it probably was. It was probably a bit of naivety, but it was just, I always wanted to grow a business. And I spent three years of our journey thinking headcount was the, the thing that we would measure our success on. And as you get into the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth year, I'm sure, headcount becomes irrelevant and business performance becomes more important and how you're performing from a profitability perspective becomes more important. But in the early days, like I honestly just used to be like, it's the age old, isn't it? You go to a bar and you meet an old mate that used to work with in recruitment. Like, how many heads are you now? It's the first question that comes out of their mouth is how many heads? Why was you caught up on that? Do you think? Oh, ego. I think, ego, yeah. I think, yeah, like we got told from most of the people when I was about to set up from a previous business that it'll never work and you've got no chance. You'll be back here in two years and that, and that negativity. And ironically, that negativity has really driven me. So I'm... going to prove people wrong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you to those people. But it also creates a bit of an ego, which I've managed to rub off over the years. But in the first two years, it was like, we can take on the world. We'll hire loads of people. And it's not as easy as it looks to do that. Yeah, fair enough. So let, let's unpack this a bit then. So obviously you started with one other person, right? Yeah. Decided not to take investment, hired obviously someone really early on. I guess hindsight's a great thing, right? What are some of the things that we would do differently, do we think, if you were to, to start over? That's what people, I guess, want to learn from or find out, knowing what you know now. How would you approach things differently, do you think? I think the number one thing that I would do is build up, if you've not taken investment, if you take an investment, you should know what your growth plan looks like and the triggers for that growth plan. If you are going down an organic route, which is what we chose, you need to think about, everyone talks about business plans. I never made one. I've got one now, but I didn't have one back then. And I still wouldn't have one now because the fluidity is very important at that stage. But if I was to look at sort of when I would hire, I would build up the bank account. I would build up the like the, the amount of money that we had to play with. And I'd spend 12 months just billing and then focus on all the other things first. 
I suppose what you end up doing is you try and create a business that's fully functional, that's PLC, that's got everything it needs in the first year when you should just focus on doing the job and and billing and making some money and putting it in the bank and then understanding what you've got to play with before you start making hires. Whereas, you know, we were month four already starting to think of how are we going to make payroll this month? Because <laughs> we'd put ourselves in such a, a tight spot from a financial perspective because we had to build to just make payroll. And, you know, we weren't in a position financially where, or I wasn't anyway, where I couldn't have been paid for the first 12 months. So I hadn't given myself a buffer. It's burn the boats, right? That's the old mentality. No money in the bank, nothing going on. We have to build from day one to make this work. And and what we did was we just sold clients consultancy services. We wrote job descriptions we honestly just did whatever we had to do to make things work in the early days and i spent a lot of that first six to 12 months pitching clients for new ideas and trying to get some partnership stuff going and it was really successful but it was really stressful because we put ourselves under pressure with hires from month three so like month three month five month six we were already hiring people and I honestly think that that's prevented us from growing long term because we've had to redo a lot of stuff in year three, four, five now to give us that platform. So so my advice to anyone would be build up your cash reserves, make sure you've got a good runway for someone. I generally look at a six month, eight month runway now of overhead costs in the bank. So Of them like, so them not contributing at all basically, like they've got six to eight months of not, yeah. Yeah, and, and from a cash perspective, we always have 12 months worth of overhead in the bank for our whole business to make sure that whatever happens, we've got 12 months. If we didn't bill another penny now, we'd have 12 months of runway. And that's a position you build up over time. You're not going to get that in the first two or three years. But the one thing is, is to make sure that you have that runway of cash. The second thing is partner with the right clients. And I think people lose sight of that massively. So we partnered with anyone that would work with us in some cases, and we would just do whatever we needed to do to make revenue in the first instance. And there's bad clients and good clients, right? Bad pound, good pound, as I call it with the team. And and actually partner with businesses that share your values and partner with businesses that generally are nice to work for. Because what we didn't realize is we did loads of revenue people in the first year. They wouldn't pay us. We couldn't get hold of them. They didn't like working with, you know, it was, it was a forced relationship because we were chasing revenue. They were just trying to get a quick service and it was a bit, in some cases, really good from the partnership stuff we did. In some cases, the one-spot work that we did with clients ended up in tears every time. Really? So how would you describe bad pounding? Because I think that I think right now, I'm sure you agree, a lot, of, a lot of recruiters could fall into the trap of being busy fools and there's loads of live jobs at the moment. And like you said, working bad pound jobs. So like you said, clients you enjoy working with, clients that actually pay you, like what other things could contribute to bad pound, do you think? I mean, we do this in training a lot with the guys, but just having good quality jobs, you know, like we were working with businesses that we knew had bad reputations in, at times that we knew were struggling financially, that wanted to drive our rates down to lower than we were prepared to work at, that, you know, when someone drops your service fee or someone wants to drop a recruitment fee at this stage in this market right here, right now, you've got to ask yourself, why is that and and what level of service are they looking for? Because for me, learning from the first year, 
we just was hanging on to any fee and anything that we could get hold of. But we were working multi-contingent jobs at times. We were working stuff with clients that we knew hadn't got a great reputation. And it does nothing for your reputation to work with businesses like that. So, you know, after six months of doing that, we were just like, right, we're just going to work with businesses we like. And we just took a no dickhead policy, really. Like, just we're not going to work with people that we don't want to work with. And it's the best thing we ever did because if I fast forward to month six to 12 and onwards, we just worked with three or four really good businesses. We got a really good relationship and they're still our biggest customers of today. So the ones that we created in the first 12 months are still our biggest customers now. And then let's let's just describe really quickly because everyone, this is subjective, right? But I think it's just good to hear different people's point of view. So just to make this really clear, how would you describe a good client, a committed client out of interest? What other things do we want to look for right now that could give us that confidence? This podcast is proudly partnered with the award-winning Sourcebreaker. So again, I'm going to tell you about a Sourcebreaker customer story. And I love this one because it's a story that this person will remember forever because Sourcebreaker enabled them to make their first deal. And we all remember our first placement. So here's another Sourcebreaker story for you. First client signed, one CV, one interview, one job offer, one week. As an apprentice recruitment consultant, I was keen to impress and get my first client under my belt. After setting up a call with a potential client, it became apparent that they needed help with a vacancy that had been live for some time. They needed very precise, specific experience and ASAP. We've all heard that before. I thought, where better to start than Sourcebreaker? I popped in a job title and the specific experience that this client needed. And guess what? Outcomes, one person, immediately available, perfect. I picked up the phone and told this person about the role. And guess what? It was a match made in heaven. I absolutely love those calls. He was interviewed the next morning, 9am, and the rest is history. Always check Sourcebreaker first. Couldn't have done it without you. If you haven't checked out Sourcebreaker yet, please go and check it out. Get yourself a demo. It will be a great 30 minutes worth of your time and start sharing stories just like this. I'd probably give you a different answer 12 months ago, but the market is so busy at the moment that I think a good client has to be mutually invested in the relationship. And I talk about this as like shared equity in the process. So if they aren't showing the signs of commitment they need to to recruit the right person typically those things fall down at the end of the process so you know if i look at our work at the moment we're probably somewhere in the region of 65 70 percent retained at the moment as a business and i know what people will say yeah but at your level recruitment because typically our work is 60k plus and people will say that that's an easy market to retain we've also started doing 50 40k roles retained as well because someone wants to recruit someone and I just think of this from my own perspective I retain a business in Manchester that does all of our recruitment for us and no problem if I'm going to hire someone then it's the same fee it's just structured in a slightly different way that gives everyone equitable value in the process so we're just starting to to test that commitment through pitching a retainer now I was always taught at, at, at sort of businesses I've worked previously like 
pitch the top service that you offer because the only way that that can go is that they'll come down a level. So we've always pitched retained as a model to every role. And if that doesn't quite work out, well, you'll end up with an exclusive job. If you pitch multi-contingent recruitment, you're unlikely for the client to turn around and say, here's a retainer, congrats. So shared equity in the process. So these clients invested in the process, coming back to you when you agree things. And if this client seems a bit disengaged early on, there's a good chance that, yeah, that things probably aren't going to go to plan to the end. And this might be a job that could actually hoover up a lot of my time, which isn't going to be good. Yeah. We do a lot of tests in our business. I don't know if other companies do this, but certainly we test that commitment with a new relationship all the time. So we'll set some pre-agreed dates. We'll also send a test CV just to make sure that we get feedback on that CV. So like rather than go out and do two weeks worth of work, which you're typically going to do on a roll, send a shortlist and then realize that the client's not coming back to you. We'll send a quick CV in, in the first two or three day window and say, can you just give us some feedback on this? If they never respond or we don't get any feedback, we understand then that they're not committed and we'll pull the plug on the process. Let's talk about now quickly then. I know we're getting practical, but I think it's really useful right now. Like you just said, pull the plug on the process. How do we go about doing that? Because I feel like I'm sure you've seen it in your team. It's quite hard to say no, right? Or quite hard to say, I'm not sure this is quite working out, James. How do we communicate that? Well, there's two ways. So we send the test CV we should have pre-agreed that on a call that actually we're going to probably send you a couple of options to make sure we're on the right lines with the, the search, et cetera. We'll wait for you to come back until we until we start the search. So if you don't get that feedback in the time frame that you've agreed with the client, you don't really have a further action there. It's just until you come back to us, we're not starting on this role. And, and generally it's like, the thing that I think we're doing a lot of at the moment is is taking it away from customers and saying, look, it seems to me that you're not quite committed to this process. That's fine. Like, And, and by all means, we want to support you long term. However, right here, right now, it looks like you're not quite ready for this. So when you are, please do come back to us. And you'll either get two responses there. Well, we are ready. You need to crack on. Or, yeah, fair enough. Actually, thanks for giving us the candid feedback. We'll come back to you when we're ready to, to make a start on this. Yeah, I love that. That's great. And, and it happens all the time. We had one today, which is a real live example of we had a retainer proposal out for three or four roles. We thought it was nailed on. The client thought it was nailed on. They've pulled it because the funding wasn't available until three weeks' time. No problem. How that had worked on a contingent basis, though, is that we'd have done all the work and then they'd have pulled the plug when we'd done all the work. So I think recruiters of today and the modern age recruiters should be valuing their time more than ever before. And if And if they're not unfortunately there's going to be a lot of rabbit holes you go down that have no success and that's not good for candidates it's not good for clients it's not good for consultants it's not good for anyone in the process if everyone's wasting time yeah for sure all right so we've spoken quite a lot about retained i'm keen to like just dig a bit more into that but Mm -hmm. before we do let's just zoom in a bit on like the last two years or so describe the business to us before we went into covid Before COVID, to be honest, me and my business partner then were just having a bit of a lull at that stage. We were growing. So we've grown 25, 30% year on year, which has been fine and it's been good. Like revenue, like top line revenue. Revenue, profit, headcount, slightly over that. I think at that stage, before COVID even happened, we were just having, I remember at the Christmas before COVID happened, we were like, hmm, are we feeling this? Where are we at? What are we thinking? And we never had a plan. So it's, it's like uh, I heard it on another podcast the other day, you know, for me, it was like we're climbing Everest and we didn't really know what we we're trying to achieve. So like we got to the top of it and it was like, well, what? That's a t- tough place to be. 
It when is. You've got all these people that you're responsible for. Yeah. And-, and you've got to put a good face on for people. And I think the one thing that we've always been is really transparent and really open with people. But it just felt like it was lacking a bit of purpose at one point. And I was burnt out. We'd worked really hard. We hadn't taken many breaks in that period to get the business off the ground. And actually, COVID was was a blessing for us other than the the obviously horrible health things that have happened in the businesses and stuff and and some of my friends have got hospitality recruitment businesses so i i really did feel for them in that period but for us it was a real line in the sand what we're doing next and as we entered that period me and my business partner decided that we were going to part ways because i think what was happening is that we were pulling each other in other directions so i was trying to pull to grow the business he was trying to pull to make it more lifestyle and it, it sort of put us in a bit of a lull period for the, the year that I talked about. And I think it was the right decision to say, well, if you want a lifestyle business, you go and do that. Like we, we both value each other's input to what we've done to this point, but I want to go and scale. And at that point we we're about eight heads, nine heads. And it was like, take someone on, wait for them to bed in. There was no real strategy to what we were trying to achieve. And it was just, felt a little bit like going through the motions for the last 12 months so when we separated obviously covid hit and it was like right we're in a world of pain here it's not a great time we took a brave decision as did andy at the time and he's gone on to do great things and we've accelerated everything in our business since that point in the sense that it was probably what we needed for a catalyst to go right what are we trying to achieve put a plan together and covid gave me like a reset for i don't know how other people feel but it gave me a month where i couldn't do anything so I just reset, wrote a business plan, got all my ideas down, what I thought was going to be rescue the business at the time because I thought we were going to go pop at one point because you're just thinking, well, if this market doesn't come back for another 12, 18 months, how are people going to survive? But actually, our market came back really quick. We were really fortunate. Our key customers from the early years really bailed us out and and we've done really well ever since. But we're now on a proper plan, proper budget, proper financial plan. We, we invested in a non-executive director who put us on the right right path. I spent a fortune. Like I doubled down on every single part of our business technology. We bought loads of new systems. We bought loads of things that we would upskill the guys. We did lockdown training sessions twice a week with the guys so that they just kept fresh while they were on furlough for a couple of months. And it's the best decision I ever made. Like it was risky at the time, but it was either we double down now and we go for it or we just accept we're going to be this eight, nine, 10 head business. And it wasn't something I was up for. Right. Thanks for sharing that. I think a lot of people will relate to that. So a few things I want to unpack here. Thinking about that period where obviously, yeah, ended up being a bit of a reset for you. What were some of the, like the important questions that you asked yourself? Cause I think like a lot of this sort of stuff can come from great questions so like these are questions that people listen to this could start because I think that's such a horrible position to be in isn't it when it's your business and you're like I actually don't know if I actually like the business and what we've created here what questions did you like ask yourself which helped you start realizing what you wanted things to be well luckily I had a great relationship with Andy so we did a lot of this together in the first instance and then I separated out my thoughts but the thing that I didn't have at that time was a purpose like where we're heading here is it just a case of we just slowly but surely trickle away and and make this business into what it is 
because it just it never felt like it could grow past eight nine heads it felt like it was stuck at that level and but it was still in a weird way tying me down it was still I had to be in the office every day I had to be there for the guys I had to make sure that you know we had enough revenue coming in it was almost like stuck between a lifestyle business and a growth business and so the questions that I asked myself were I'm enjoying this what's my purpose and what's the purpose of our business what we're trying to achieve and where's it heading like what do we want to get out of it and what I realized is that and the big learning for me in that whole period was twofold one was you need to have a plan of what you want to get out of it, but you've also got to accept that you can't just drive everything towards an event. There can't just be one target and it can't move and it can't be fluid because it's like that Everest mentality I just said, like you're climbing up Everest and you don't actually know what you're trying to achieve at the end. So you need a bit of a plan and a bit of a structure in your thoughts around what you want to achieve, but actually it's got to be fluid so that you're enjoying the journey, not just enjoying the destination. Yeah, it's about the process, yeah. And like, I wasn't enjoying the journey. I was hating the journey and, and I had to be quite honest with myself. Why am I hating the journey? And it, and it was generally, I'd not enjoyed the person that I turned into and I'd not enjoyed the business that we created at that particular moment in time. And it wasn't toxic and it was fine. And everyone in our team will have not known what I was going through mentally at that stage, but it was just, they were happy, but I wasn't, I was sat there thinking, this is not for me. And I employed a non-exec director, I got a personal coach, I got a business coach. And actually over that period of time, I've really, really like discovered what I want to get out of this. Um, I love that. My, so yeah, it's been good. Would you mind sharing, like, you don't have to go into like numbers and everything, but like, I think sometimes people will think, okay, well, I'm going to sit down and think about what the business is going to be turning over revenue wise, what all that. So like, what are some of the, I know you said it has to be fluid and I really like that. So obviously it has to be ever-changing, but you have to have some sort of like North Star that you're aiming towards. What are some of the things that you're aiming towards in terms of, is it revenue, is it headcount goals? What are some of the core things that you write down? Yeah, there's a couple of bits. Financial, yep. Uh, We wrote a business plan financially. That was the first point and that was the staple diet of we needed the financials to support the growth plan that we wanted to achieve. So I made a decision that it was going to be a growth business and I made a decision that I was going to take less money. I was going to take less profit out of the business and I was going to invest a lot more. And in order to do that, we had to get the numbers to where we needed to get them. So at that stage, so if I go 2019, our year to date was about 700K or something in that world, 750 NFI, which is, which is not great for a three-year-old business. But since that you know we decided that last year we wanted to beat that which we did and then this year it's we're on a a financial business plan which is 1.5 million nfi 2 million nfi then 2.5 million nfi that will end up landing us at a million pound net profit is the plan and the reason for that was we realized to keep our staff happy and we broke it into three key principles some a bit corny but like we worked out what does our business want to achieve we want to be do right by people which we've always done small things big things everything but if if we're going to do right by our staff what does that mean well they've got to be paid well the commission's got to be great which it always has been here got to give them training and development progression plans and a roadmap to success what their success looks like and we didn't have that because clearly a roadmap to success means we need growth because we can't afford people manager roles and director roles and all the other things if we don't grow 
So we needed to do that. The second thing was around like quality, not quantity, right clients, right people, right staff, right processes, right infrastructure. And so we built that out as a plan. And the third thing was like atomic habits or effective habits of just what the day-to-day processes look like and making sure that they're ingrained in our culture. Standards. Yeah. I love that. Mate, thanks for sharing that. That's awesome. I have to ask you, I'm going to ask you about your non-exec. That's a common question I get. And I know we've spoken about things like that in the past. Another common question I get, like in that decision of like, right, instead of taking, I'm going to be investing more, investing more to grow more. What like tools, tech and stuff have you invested in that has had a real impact on your business? The first thing that my non-exec said to me when we started on our first call was two things you don't change in this, this industry. One is the commission structure. Two is your technology system. So your CRM. So the first two things that I did was I changed my CRM system and I increased my commission structure. (laughs) So obviously good at taking feedback, but we implemented Vincere right in the heat of lockdown. We decided that it was the right time. The old system that we use was clunky. I'm a real, real, real believer of Vincere as a system. And if I was, I must have recommended 20 people to Vincere over the years because... I think they're going to change the game. And I can say that wholeheartedly, having used Bullhorn and another product, I can say that Vincere is number one in that world for a growing recruitment business because it's intuitive, it's got intelligence suites, it's got everything that you probably need to scale yeah, up. Yeah, so a whole business. operating system, not just a CRM, is it? Is this whole yeah, point? And they're brilliant. Like, you know, Eloise and the team there, they're, they're great. And they're always there if you need them for anything. So, Any other tools that you've invested in that, are sort of non-negotiable for you, do you think? We, we got told by our clients that Audro would never work or video technology would never work. And, and I can wholeheartedly say that they all love video technology now in their recruitment process to save them time. So that's been good. We use Sourcebreaker, which has been a game changer for our delivery function. So the outsource part of our business, because it just saves them hours and hours each day. And the, the latest one that we've used, we're just about to launch New York. Well, we have launched New York, but soft launch at this stage. So by the time the podcast comes out, it should be out there. Zoom Info, one of the best things oh, I think yeah. I've that's, ever that's seen. Better. It's going to America, America now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, so that's like, if anyone that doesn't know, it's like, it, it, yeah, so you can get, obviously, contact details and customer information. And obviously, UK versions of that popular ones are like, yeah, Lusher, you hear a lot. You've got things like Lead IQ, Seamless AI, a few things, yeah. Absolutely no-brainer if people aren't looking at these tools, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Zoom Info thing as well, they've just bought a business in the Europe, which means that they're downloading thousands and thousands of records. But in America, if you're going into America without Zoom Info, yeah. I mean, struggle. Well, it's just, I think it must level the playing field with any big global business that are out there already because it's there's not a contact on there that's not got mobile number, email address, contact details. It is insane. Yeah. Okay, so before we finish, I just want to make sure we've sort of made this crystal clear for people. So common question that I get are, as, as I'm sure you'll be aware, most recruitment agencies in the UK are at the size of what you're at, right? Before, previously, in terms of like around 10 people, right? So let's just say I'm someone that owns that business and I, I do want to grow, but I am yo-yoing all the time. I'm not sure what the sort of next step is. Obviously, as I said in the intro, you're at sort of 16 people now. And I know, as you said offline, like you're in a position to grow that even more. It's just obviously getting the people. If I'm listening to this right now, what things do I need to sort of start immediately looking at and maybe taking action on that could put me in good stead to like go from 10 to 15, 15 to 20 that you've done? What do you think it's had an impact? The best thing I ever did from a structural point of view is write out where your 
prospective heads would go. So, for example, when I was at 10 heads, and I'm sure people are like this, I was like, I don't even know how these people get to 100 heads. Get an org chart and write down exactly what markets, what specialisms, what areas of the country you would put people into, or, or internationally if it's international. Because when I did that, I realised I didn't have enough divisions and enough niches in order to, to be able to create enough headcount. That was the number one thing that I did. And that just visually gives me something to, I'm a visual person to look at a structure and go, wow, you could get to 50 heads here with all these different markets. So that was one. The second thing, which I think was quite important was build your infrastructure as if you're going to be a hundred person business. So at the minute, I've built our infrastructure as if we're going to be 50 heads. And therefore, you put yourself under a little bit of pressure when you start buying Sourcebreaker and all these different tools, you think, we are set up now to be able to be 50, 60, 70 heads. Everything's set up now. We've got an FD, we've got finance, we've got IT, hit, all of it's set up. But I think what people do, and I did, is you start to hire people before you're ready and then nothing's in place, your induction's not working, nothing's actually there. So I think for us, it was about getting ready before we started to hire people. And then the third thing is you've just got to trust in, in yourself and have the confidence to do it because... Tens a really comfy amount where you're making good numbers and you're making good money. As you start to break through 15 heads, your profit margin does erode slightly. To be comfortable with that, I expect that. Like you said, like what you've done, right? You've invested to grow more, right? Rather than make more money to take more money for yourself and whatever you're doing with it. But go back to that that thing that we said about understand what you're trying to achieve. Because if you're just trying to achieve a profit-based business, don't grow. Like stay at 10, 12, 13 heads. Yeah, you just can be make extremely profitable. Yeah, 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 you yeah. can make loads of money out of doing that. But if you do want to grow, you've got to sacrifice. It's the same as anything. And the sacrifice is typically the owner's profit. And like, if, if that's the case, then the, the money that I take home is a lot less than it was. But it's it's because I know what I'm, I'm aiming towards now. Brilliant. Before we finish then, I have to ask you, because you've been really open and honest. I wanted to, I guess, just, just really ask a question or try and uncover it a bit. You said a few times, obviously, early on, mentally it was stressful. You said, obviously, at that period where you had a reset, you invested in yourself as well as the business. What things have helped you mentally get through things? Because I know you said, obviously, before we started, obviously, thinking about the dark days and stuff like that. As the owner, sometimes you put that pressure on yourself to show a brave face. People wouldn't have known how James actually felt about the environment that he's built or that you weren't satisfied or fulfilled. Yeah, I guess just talk to us about that process of like coming to terms with that and then just talk a bit about because people might be feeling like that and sort of there might be some things in there that could help people move forward or take a step in the right direction that could help them mentally. Yeah, I mean, if you're a business owner out there and you've not had investment and you've got no non-executive director, the world can be quite dark place at times. I mean, you're constantly thinking about next month's bills, VAT, tax, these things, and it can weigh you down a little bit and just your thought processes can, can start getting slightly warped around. There's a lot of things to think about and a lot of moving parts. I think the thing that really helped me recently and helped me at that period was having a business partner, great understanding guy. We talked a lot. He was really supportive and we were supportive of each other. So that was great. When I've lost the business partner, I've had to plug that in with some external help. So I've got a good network of people. Yourself, like everyone in, in the network that I have now, you could lean on people for advice. But having a personal coach has been the best thing that I could have ever done in terms of just, it's like having a sparring partner, right? You let you, all your frustrations any, and you can vent about how you're feeling about stuff. And I think there's a bit of a stigma, especially with blokes and, and other business owners that I know. 
this macho, you've got to be looking like you're successful at all times is key, but it's not actually. And, and I think the more that people get in tune with how they're feeling, the better it becomes. And I'm the happiest version of myself that I've been in a, as long as I can remember for the last two years. And I'd, I'd say that's because I've built the business that I now want and the business is doing well. And I'm enjoying the journey of building and the process of that. I love that. Going on that journey, does it help you personally as well and your personal relationships out of interest? Yeah, definitely. And your personal relationships are the ones that get hit the hardest when you're growing a business, right? Because, you know, my mates are like, fuck it. Like, is this guy even still around? Because I was just nowhere to be seen. I was working, 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 working for the first three years. And I've managed to get some balance now. And I think productivity now has become the key word for me is if I'm sat here just to show that I'm in the office for 12 hours, I'm doing something wrong. Like my hours are literally blocked out. I'm a master planner and I make sure that our team now aren't sitting in the office at six, seven, eight o'clock at night anymore. How did you go about finding a personal coach? Because that isn't something that maybe a lot of people would have done. To be honest, it was network. So someone recommended a guy to me that they used and I ended up having a first session and then, and we just got on and, and it's snowballed from there really. But I've also started some business coaching recently, which they're very different processes. The personal coaching is just around mindset really, whereas the business coach is just around benchmarking ideas and making sure that you're not going to go down the wrong path. I think the biggest problem when growing a recruitment business is you go down a lot of rabbit warrens that don't come to anything and then you have to reverse out of it and it might take you six 12 months to realize you've made a mistake so yeah no, i love that and then what what do these sessions actually look like is it just like are they asking you questions just to paint a picture for people the personal ones or the, the business either yeah just to give us a bit of a snapshot so the the personal ones are generally sort of talking about how your week's been like i mean to start off with like what you're trying to achieve like you would with any sort of session and then when you transition into the day-to-day of it it's just how's your week been what's been the challenges how have you overcome them how have you felt about them and it really just the way i describe it is it untangles your brain like if you've got a thousand tabs open in your head it allows you to close 900 of them Mm. and then the business coach there's just more business context and a bit more business professional chat the thing with the business coach, and it sounds like overkill on coaching, it's not. It's an hour, sometimes an hour a month in some of these things, but it's someone to keep you accountable to do the things that you know you need to do that you don't want to do. I, yeah, and, you have, and you haven't got a business partner who probably yeah, yeah. helps with that, right? So it's like, what do you actually need to do? And we've created these three key principles and it's sort of, right, what are the projects that are going to spin out of that? Well, we need to put a an AJ playbook together on sales. Okay, that's not something that I'm going to sit there and do unless someone makes me accountable for it. I know it's, but I yeah, know it's yeah. important, but I'm just not, I'm not going to sit and do it unless I know there's a benefit to me. And so it's just like, Oh, that date's coming around again. I better get some of this work done. And it just yeah, yeah. Keeps, keeps me accountable for what I'm doing. I love that. And then final thing, I know we said, I was going to ask you this. I know a lot of people get value from it. Obviously I saw not too long ago, you had multiple people become shareholders in AJ. That must've been a, proud moment for you could you just talk to before we finish just a bit about how you structured that because i feel like a lot of conversation i had recently with agency leaders is for those that do want to grow and maybe achieve some sort of event or they are thinking how they could sort of get in the position where they're like very much maybe become a chairman of their own business and other people are involved could you just tell us a bit about how that's structured and how that all works yeah yeah so effectively i used to own 100 percent of the business i've div- i've dissolved some of my equity 
to give it out to our leadership team currently, but the plan is to give it out to the wider team. So I've put that equity in a pot for the leaders of our business. And I've divvied that up and said, look, these are the divisions that you run. This is where we want to get to from a target perspective as a business. I'm going to give you this equity today, and then you can grow that equity in our business over a course of three to five years. So that was the first thing. And that's not, just for clarity, that's twofold. We've got an EMI scheme for staff so that they can own shares in our business, and this is equity. So I'm physically giving out... Yeah, Yeah, it's different. So, And it's important for me that I bring people on the journey with me that I'm not just this person that takes, 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 takes. And I've become less money motivated as the years go on. And it's all about building this sustainable business now. And so, you know, I brought, obviously, Steph, our first ever employee, started as a senior consultant, now runs her own business unit, and she's got equity. Rick and Marcus, Rick, I brought in from Oliver James, two years ago he now owns a good size of the business and runs our sales function and marcus who came in recently is going to be uh, in charge of our exec search practice and so i've got the three pillars of my business now that i'm going to build out people through and then people like alicia that you've met is on a trajectory now to get herself into a position to get some emi shares and over time what i'd like to do is is that the the team own half the business i love that yeah, anyone that's like thinking about that, I'm sure you'd be happy to get in touch with you. 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's been the impact so far, do you think, in terms of from your point of view? The impact's been great. However, like to go back a step, I've not given that out as an incentive necessarily. It's twofold. I've given it out as a reward for real hard work and dedication, but I've also, it's incentivizing them for the future. But the thing is, there's nothing better, right, than feeling like you've got the ability to own part of a business. So there's no one sat out on our sales floor today that can't have that same situation happen to them. And that's important to me because I got given that opportunity early on and I've taken my opportunity, but I want to be able to share that success i think the positive thing is is that it's really really glued our culture together if it needed doing but it it just feels like everyone's on the bus in our business at the moment yeah and everyone's like you said you've now done what that purpose is and people can really see that and they're all going in that same trajectory and also it's given real accountability through the structure of our business now that i don't run any part of our business i just help the guys with what they need so if steph needs me i'm around and i do a lot around the podcast now for for, for our client base etc but our, my, my role now is just to outwardly present aj and i've become a recruitment internal recruiter you know I'm, I'm just recruiting people for our team now love it james been an absolute pleasure thanks for being super open honest no really enjoyed that thanks a lot cheers mate thank you well done on making it to the very end of the episode i hope you enjoyed it I've done my very best to try and level up this podcast that will hopefully mean that you can take even more learnings from these conversations and apply it to your own recruitment career like always if there are any particular topics that you would love me to cover with future guests then please get in touch with me the best place to reach me is on linkedin send me a message what would you love me to cover with future guests if you have enjoyed the podcast then it would be amazing if you could leave a honest review in your favorite podcast streaming platform that will simply mean that we're able to reach more people with this podcast i hope you enjoyed it and don't forget to subscribe completely free on your favorite podcast streaming platforms and we'll be back next week with a new episode of the recruitment mentors podcast